Bitcoin does function as a proxy for global liquidity, but right now liquidity is contracting more aggressively than it ever has before. So Bitcoin is monetary debasement insurance, but right now money isn't getting debased, even though inflation is very high. Money is actually getting uh, restricted and constrained and, and liquidity is being removed from dollar money markets, capital markets, banks, etc. Um, so <laughs> with Bitcoin, you get the good and you also get the bad. And right now we're living through the bad because for a limited period of time, uh, for Christmas, I suppose, Jerome Powell is giving us the gift of austerity. And so global liquidity is contracting for now. Uh, but in the long run, it'll expand. And so for people like us in the Western world, uh, you know, that infinite liquidity expansion uh, in response to every crisis, Bitcoin benefits us because we can hold it. It can act as debasement insurance for us when money is getting debased, which for now, for the time being, it isn't. Um, and so Bitcoin, wherever you live in the world, um, there is something for you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Joe Consorti. Joe, welcome. Joe, great to sit back down with you again today. I'm really excited to chat. Absolutely. You have a lot of great takes on Bitcoin and macro, so we had to bring you back on. Um, in your the Bitcoin layer, which is the newsletter that you uh, co-author, I guess, with, with Dick Batia, right behind you, um, you recently talked about how rate hikes could be over because the two-year and the federal funds curve has inverted. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Do you still agree with that? What's the significance of this? Um, yeah, let's just start there. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great topic to start on because, uh, and I'm really happy that Nick has been such a great mentor in the rates market because I, prior to uh, meeting with Nick, I had a pretty preliminary understanding of the rates market. I understood that it dictated how companies did their DCF models. I understood that it was the cost of capital. I understood that different tenors corresponded to different sorts of borrowing along the U.S. Treasury curve. Uh, but but really, there's more to it than just that. And, and uh, working with Nick, who obviously worked on a rates desk for nearly a decade, um, it, it's really opened my eyes to the significance of rates and also what they can tell us, what signals they give us. And in the case of uh, twos Fed funds, which is our abbreviation of um, the two-year yield and the federal funds rate, the spread between the two um, in bond lingo, when you're talking tenors along the U.S. Treasury curve, it's not the two-year, the three-year, the five-year, the ten-year, the thirty-year. It's twos, five, tens, etc. And so we've been talking about twos Fed funds and it being a significant spread uh, as far back as I can remember. Uh, you know, all the way back in May when when Nick and I began working together. And we've been writing about how every single time two's Fed funds is inverted, i.e. the two-year yield has fallen below the federal funds rates upper bound, then the hiking cycle has been over um, and a pause ensues. And the length of pause uh, varies between different hiking cycles. But the one thing that remains the same is that the Fed does not hike after two's Fed funds inverts and stays there. And... The reason this is, uh, well, there are several possible reasons that this is, um, but the simplest reason is that you can think of the two-year yield as a short rate, right? It is a obviously uh, a shorter duration along the U.S. Treasury curve. Um, you know, you have um, uh, you have different months all the way up to 30 years, and the two-year yield, in terms of being a short rate, is one of the most liquid. 
uh, short rates, i.e. there is more capital locked up in two-year treasury, uh, two-year treasury notes than there are in uh, other instruments along the curve. So the most liquid parts of the curve are twos and tens. Um, now twos, because they're so liquid, because there's so much capital there, then you can take that as an accurate indicator of what the market thinks rates are going to be in the near term, in the short term, and what investors are willing to park their capital uh, for uh, within a two-year period of time, right? Um, and so what's, what's happening when something like the two-year yield, um, uh, you know, at the start of the hiking cycle, for example, whenever the Fed would announce that it would, uh, you know, it intended to start hiking, the two-year yield moved before Fed funds, right? Because if you think about Fed funds as the Fed's ability to influence the front end of the curve, it's its overnight policy rate, uh, its overnight interbank lending rate that it, it, it sets and creates and tries to influence other short rates that way, then the two-year yield moves up prior to Fed funds in anticipation of Fed funds moving up, right? Um, you know, investors are, are, are selling uh, this two-year note uh, and its yield is rising uh, on the market. And as the Fed continues hiking and as it forecasts more hikes, it uses forward guidance to say, we're going to hike uh, another 50 basis points, another 75 basis points, and the market slowly digests that. Over the course of the hike cycle, the two-year yield leads Fed funds in rising, right? So rates lead the Fed, and the two-year yield rises before Fed funds, um, generally by you know a few weeks, a few months, what have you. And prior to every hike this cycle, that's what has occurred. The two-year yield is repriced upward, Fed funds has moved up. So the spread between the two has been relatively, relatively stable. But over the last few months, it has started narrowing. It has started falling. And after this last hike, uh, two, the two-year yield is 425, 425 basis points, 4.25%. And Fed funds is now 4.5% on the upper bound. So two's Fed funds has inverted. Now, as I mentioned, every single time two's Fed funds invert, has inverted, the Fed's hiking cycle has been over and a pause ensues. Well, why does that, why does that happen? Well, I mentioned the two-year yield is a, a highly liquid short rate, right? It's a short rate, and the Fed's game is interest rate-driven monetary policy. Their policy influence only works if they can dictate where short rates move. That's what the federal funds rate is. The federal funds rate isn't a rate that's actually used very often. It's just a benchmark rate that gets set by the Fed uh, where, for where the Fed intends front-end rates to be, right? And one of those front-end rates is the two-year yield. And when the two-year yield is disobeying the Fed, right? it's obeyed the Fed all year, but as we were approaching peak tightness in the eyes of the market, the two-year yield is disobeying the Fed. That means the Fed's policy influence is waning, right? And because the two-year yield hasn't repriced above the federal funds rate upper bound, that's the market saying, I'm, I'm willing to lock in 4.2% versus the overnight annualized 4.5% I could get or 4.3 or 4.4%, I could get at the Fed's reverse repo facility, or any one of these other, you know, interbank, you know, the Fed funds is an interbank lending rate. Um, as a bank, you have the choice to engage in funding activity with other banks, or you could park your capital in the United States Treasury two-year uh, two note and capture 4.2% annualized for two years. So the, the, the one thing, the one reason why it portends the end of the hiking cycle is that it shows the Fed's influence is waning. So if the Fed hiked again, nothing would really happen to front-end rates. So it doesn't make sense for the Fed to hike anymore. 
And two is that investors are betting rates will be lower because they're willing to get a, a marginally lower rate, locking their capital up for two years. Of course, they can go and sell it, uh, you know, uh, on secondary markets and things like that. But new issues and existing issues, they're willing to buy a two-year note, lock their capital up at a lower rate versus the higher rate they could get elsewhere. So the market's telling you that, hey, this is a neutral rate right here, and we're expecting your policy rate to be lower in the future. So that's basically the significance of the inversion of two's Fed funds. It shows that the Fed can no longer control front-end rates. It no longer has influence over rates, which means its monetary policy, apart from QE, is kaput. So it doesn't make sense for the Fed to hike anymore. And it also shows that market participants are anticipating uh, cuts from the Federal Reserve across all of its different policy rates. So long-winded explanation, but I think that's the best I can do for listeners to give them an explanation of this because a lot of pundits have been talking about two's Fed funds, but not a lot of people have been explaining exactly why. And so I I hope that clears that up. Yeah, no, that was extremely well said, I think. Um, It basically sounds like the market is kind of telling the Fed that, hey, you're done here hiking. we want to buy this at this price. We don't care if it's a little less than what you're offering overnight because we're worried that you're probably going to start cutting or at least pausing soon, which makes a lot of sense. Can you tell like the listeners how this relates to Bitcoin from like a very high level as well? Like why are we monitoring the Fed and why are we thinking about the macro situation and, and federal funds rate and the two-year yield? Why are we thinking about this in regards to Bitcoin? It's a great question. Obviously, you know, as a as a Bitcoiner, as, as an Austrian economist, I wince every time I realize that these institutions exist. Um, but you know, at this point in time, um, here, uh, you know, at the Bitcoin layer, we understand that Bitcoin is uh, a parallel monetary system uh, in, in a monetary asset that is growing and monetizing in real time. But it exists in a universe of other assets, um, in a universe where the price of money is set by a central entity. Um, and there are, you know, cross-corollary relationships between Bitcoin and interest rates and Bitcoin and risk assets um, and the people that trade all of them in tandem. So that's why uh, at TBL we cover Bitcoin through a global macro lens. You know, on occasion we leverage uh, on-chain analytics, um, but for the most part, we take a look at what's happening in the wider macro scene because at this moment in time, Bitcoin is very, very beholden to the macro environment. Um, gold is $13 trillion in market cap. The S&P 500, it's probably shed a few trillion, but it's around $36, $35, 36000000000000 uh, in market capitalization. Bitcoin is uh, $0.4 trillion. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty tiny relative to other asset classes. And granted, that's what gives Bitcoin its signature exponential growth profile, right? Very low liquidity, very high leverage. Um, but that's also what makes it especially susceptible to drawdowns during the, uh, you know, the downturn of the credit cycle, which is what we're living through right now. Um, you know, liquidity is being sucked from the system pretty aggressively. That's sort of, you know, that's been the talk of the town since March when the Fed began uh, raising interest rates and also, uh, you know, tightening up its balance sheet by allowing assets to mature off of it. And so as global liquidity contracts, Bitcoin is more sensitive to that than most other assets because of its really low liquidity profile and its highly excessive leverage. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very sensitive to interest rates, right? And, uh, and we call that high duration. Duration means interest rate sensitivity. So you can measure an asset's interest rate sensitivity um, based on, you know, its relationship to 
uh, front end interest rates uh, and you know long end interest rates, higher duration interest rates like like the ten year yield. Um, and Bitcoin as an asset is very very high duration. It's highly sensitive to changes in interest rates, right? As uh, along the U.S. Treasury curve, um, all you know global in, global rates you can get on other uh, foreign sovereign bonds. Um, and key overnight rates that get set by central banks as all of those have risen really aggressively, Bitcoin is sold off uh, to the tune of 70-75%. And you know we feel as a publication it's important uh, to highlight that, and that's why we, we cover macro equally, if not more, than we do uh, Bitcoin. Um, you know, Bitcoin is extremely beholden to the macro landscape and especially uh, beholden to interest rates and the, and the, the way that interest rates move. Um, and uh, so as we are in this downturn of the global credit cycle, uh, well, the liquidity cycle right now, credit is doing okay. I expect it to deteriorate more as uh, corporate debt rollovers begin next year and into the following year, and then issuance becomes more of an issue as uh, you know people want to take on less risk and it's, it's more difficult to find lenders. Credit is fine for now, but during the liquidity cycle downturn especially, um, Bitcoin was really the first mover to fall because of how sensitive it is. But also, the utility of that is that Bitcoin will probably be the first mover to start rising once again when liquidity conditions become more favorable. Um, now, the, the key components to making liquidity conditions more favorable are uh, inflation to fall fast. And the reason we want inflation to fall fast is because it means the Fed can change course fast. If inflation remains sticky, then the Fed has to hold right where it is and it increases the risk of a liquidity event across markets. You know, we've seen that in Bitcoin several times in 2019, in March, March 13th, 2020, a day that will live in infamy, right? Um, and so the idea is that Bitcoin will be the first to move when liquidity conditions become more favorable. But really, right now, all eyes are on the macro picture. Everyone's hoping and praying that inflation slows quickly. So that way, markets don't deteriorate before the Fed can pivot. And when the Fed does pivot and we start to see liquidity conditions ease, Bitcoin will sort of be the, the fire alarm for that. Luke Roman said Bitcoin is the last functioning fire alarm. And for that reason, I tend to believe him. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like Bitcoin is just this global gauge for monetary liquidity. And like you said, it's one of the first assets to go when there is no liquidity and it it's going to be one of the fastest assets to rise when there is liquidity. So whenever that moment shifts, um, it's going to be a great time to, to be holding actual Bitcoins. Um, shifting to like a slightly different topic, we recently had on Michael Saylor on our podcast, and he talked about the word regulation and how it could, in his mind, it could be replaced with the word transparency. Um, what do you think about the role for like government and regulation in the Bitcoin and broadly the crypto industry as well. Right. I think, I think that's a good, um, that's good word choice because when it comes to Bitcoin, transparency is baked into the nature of the network. Um, you know, you can view the ownership. Um, you can validate the ownership if you have a full node of, of all of the Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network. And so transparency is like it's baked into Bitcoin. There doesn't need to be regulation when you know who owns what and you can see that the network is functioning exactly as it should. Obviously, that, that makes central authorities, the surveillance state, very, very upset that you, you can't exactly see what wallets are ascribed to what person, but you can't see what wallets own what, um, you know, and the, the relationships between addresses and et cetera. And so, 
transparency is really baked into Bitcoin. So I think for Bitcoin, transparency makes a whole lot, whole lot of sense. When it comes to the broader crypto ecosystem and at the Bitcoin layer, and this is a rule that I implemented, um, we use crypto in quotes perpetually. And so every time I say crypto during this conversation, the viewers uh, and the listeners just know that I, we are doing uh, proverbial air quotes every time we say crypto. Um, but when it comes to crypto, the majority of these assets are spun up by companies uh, you know, or, or a central entity um, that exists on a blockchain that is either controlled or largely, largely owned uh, by a central entity and funded by cheap, cheap, cheap and readily available venture capital money as a result of interest rates that were held too low for too long. So you have crypto, um, you know, basically a series of companies that exist purely because of zero interest rate policy and, um, you know, a need to sort of piggyback onto this monetizing technology that is Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin doesn't have a center. Um, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have a central issuer. It's essentially survival of the fittest among commodity producers to see who can produce it the most cheaply. Um, and it's a monetary good that, you know, continues accumulating liquidity just off the basis of its existence, right? There's no marketing budget. The only thing that makes Bitcoin and the knowledge of Bitcoin proliferate are people who create businesses and, and also individuals who want to spread the word, who invest in the asset class and want to explain it to other people, etc. So with Bitcoin, you have you know an organic technology that is monetizing and that is fully transparent, you know, by the nature of it. Um, there's a you know obviously paper Bitcoin is an issue. But paper Bitcoin is much less of an issue than something like paper gold, where gold is much more opaque. Taking delivery of gold, especially if you have a large quantity of it, is extremely difficult. And so there's uh, an embedded layer of trust in gold that is necessary. With Bitcoin, there is no layer of trust that is necessary. And so because of that, there is a much lower issue of paper Bitcoin. Uh, but that same level of transparency cannot be said for these, uh, these crypto tokens, um, these assets that were spun up out of thin air. Uh, you know, that are pumped up by venture capital liquidity, have huge marketing budgets, um, and essentially they don't function uh, for, for really anything useful. Um, you know, people say, well, what's Bitcoin's function? Well, there are, are several different functions of Bitcoin. Um, and ultimately with Bitcoin, for, for whatever reason, it, it's sort of what you make it when it comes to Bitcoin. Um, you know, if you live in, you know, outside of the Western Hemisphere, um, it can allow you to transact freely. Right. You and I, Joe, we have no issue with that. You know, at the Bitcoin conference, you know, we'll Venmo each other back and forth. Uh, we have no issue. You know, it's not like it's not like PayPal is going to come down and halt our transactions because we said something mean on Twitter. Um, but in places where there aren't friendly regulatory environments or there isn't a formalized banking structure, Bitcoin's utility is just transacting and actually, ver you know, ownership of your own assets, you know, which seems archaic and antiquated to us. But it's absolutely revolutionary for people who aren't in the Western world. That's the utility of Bitcoin for them. Then the utility of Bitcoin for individuals like us who are in the Western world, um, especially places like uh, New England, where I am, and uh, in Canada, uh, up in the Western half of Canada, um, where real estate prices are just absolutely awful. Um, you know, the, the home prices are, are, are extremely high. Everything around us um, is getting more expensive because money is getting devalued. For individuals like us in the Western world who, um, you know, especially you and I who are still relatively young, 
Uh, it functions as a savings technology to protect us from monetary debasement. Now, a lot of people will wag their finger and laugh and say, oh, how's your monetary debasement insurance doing now, bud? It's down to $18,000. And to that, I would say, well, buddy, uh, how about you take a look at leading indicators instead of lagging indicators, my friend? Because all throughout monetary expansion, Bitcoin was pumping through the stratosphere. Why? Because it's a porous sponge for global liquidity. Uh, you know, and <laughs> what's happening right now? Well, inflation is extremely elevated, but inflation lags by about 18 months, my friend. And if you take a look at actual global liquidity, that's contracting pretty heftily. So Bitcoin does function as a proxy for global liquidity. But right now, liquidity is contracting more aggressively than it ever has before. So Bitcoin is monetary debasement insurance. But right now, money isn't getting debased, even though inflation is very high. Money is actually getting uh, restricted and constrained. And, and liquidity is being removed from dollar money markets, capital markets, banks, etc. Um, so <laughs> with Bitcoin, you get the good and you also get the bad. And right now, we're living through the bad because for a limited period of time, uh, for Christmas, I suppose, Jerome Powell is giving us the gift of austerity. And so global liquidity is contracting for now. Uh, but in the long run, it'll expand. And so for people like us in the Western world, uh, you know, that infinite liquidity expansion uh, in response to every crisis, Bitcoin benefits us because we can hold it. It can act as debasement insurance for us when money is getting debased, which for now, for the time being, it isn't. Um, and so Bitcoin, wherever you live in the world, um, there is something for you when it comes to that. Um, you know, and, and it's not like Bitcoin has a center. It's not like it's going to change. Its property, fundamental properties won't change. The total amount that will ever exist won't change. Uh, you know, it's, it's already reached escape velocity in terms of that. Whereas with all of these crypto tokens, they are trying to ride off the back of the, off the success of this excellent technology that is being created and is utilitarian in several different senses. Um, and in that case, I think the word regulation makes a lot more sense because you can't have transparency when there is a center to your technology. You can't have transparency when you're hiring an auditor that isn't an auditor, they're not conducting an audit, and they're hired by you. So they have every incentive uh, to skew the results of an audit in your favor. Um, in the case of Binance, this audit didn't encompass liabilities at all, at all. And all the audit was, was a, a, a six cell spreadsheet that shows total assets. And that's it. And then it said how many assets it has in plain text. Like that's not an audit. Um, you know, with a Bitcoin node, that is an audit. Uh, every second, every 10 minutes, uh, you know, a new block comes through. The entire history of Bitcoin gets validated once again in a decentralized fashion that you can trust. You cannot trust any central institution that hires somebody or you know conducts an audit behind closed doors. Um, and so in those cases, in the case of crypto, which again is an asset class that exists purely opportunistically, opportunistically taking advantage of low interest rates and taking advantage of, of Bitcoin and trying to piggyback off the coattails of that, because that's what venture capitalists do. Um, and uh, you know, in in, the, in those cases, the word regulation makes a lot more sense because ultimately these things are securities, right? People can use the word uh, Web three and crypto and blockchain, but um, unfortunately, the world is filled with charlatans, and charlatans have co-opted all those terms. So I think transparency is a great replacement word for the word regulation. Um, but in the most blatant cases, um, I do think the word regulation still makes a whole lot of sense when it comes to crypto. Yeah, I think that was a really great explanation uh, comparing, you know, the idea of transparency and regulation. Um, but, yeah, going back to, you know, the price of Bitcoin right now, 
it is interesting because people that aren't in the Bitcoin space throughout the years always seem to be like very short sighted. Whereas in the past, you know, 2018, 2019 bear market, you know, Bitcoin was at $3,000. Now it's, you know, $16,000. So 5x or more higher than it was back then, which is a pretty great return. <laughs> um, and this is with, you know, the entire crypto industry basically imploding right before our eyes. Um, but people somehow think, you know, Bitcoin is dead and the world is ending. And obviously it was so obvious in hindsight to them, but it's like, we're still 5x higher than we were when half of these companies, you know, were didn't exist or, or were not imploding. <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting to see how that happens. Um, you brought up an interesting point with, with Binance. I thought it was interesting. I think CZ was being interviewed somewhere. Maybe it was on CNBC. And one thing that he, he mentioned that he did, Binance has not received like a very traditional real audit uh, was he kind of came up with this excuse that auditing firms and accounting firms aren't used to to auditing exchanges. But then I saw like Coinbase has De- Deloitte as their accountant or auditor. So I was like, I mean, if, if, if Deloitte can do Coinbase, I'd imagine they should be able to do Binance too. It's more like they probably don't want to do Binance. And if they don't want to do Binance, uh, why that's kind of a red flag right there. Or Binance doesn't want an actual auditor to audit them. So, yeah, plenty of red flags there. Very interesting. Yeah, Coinbase, um, you know, they, they've got a, a, a real accounting firm. And uh, I think one of the reasons you see Binance not doing that is because compare go to, go to Coinbase.com and go to Binance.com and compare the amount of exotic products that both has. I may hate Coinbase. I may hate anyone that has crypto on their platform. Um, you know, again, and it, this this opportunistic, ugly thing that exists in the shadow of, of Bitcoin, which is a good-hearted, good-natured monetary technology with no center. But also, Coinbase.com has far fewer exotic products than Binance. Binance has so many exotic products. Um, you know, it spun up its own token. It did all this this other stuff, and, and a lot of that is opaque. And it, for Binance, they probably want it to stay opaque and behind closed doors. Um, because if it wasn't, yeah, you know, they, they, they might run into trouble. Um, so it's not, you know, when CZ says, oh, they're not used to auditing firms like us. Um, yeah, they are. You can be audited by, uh, you know, Deloitte just like Coinbase is. Um, but, but it's a choice on their part not to. And the fact that they haven't yet, not to spread FUD, should be disconcerting, right? I mean, I think the idea of uh, Bitcoin is verifiable digital ownership, and you don't verifiably own anything if you have it locked up on Binance. So withdrawn, you know, we'll see what happens. Any solvent exchange that has reserves one-to-one can meet all of the withdrawals that come to it. So, Yeah, definitely. I mean, we saw Jesse Powell. He was, I think he's CEO of, of Kraken, or he at least was CEO of Kraken, um, talk about how he wants customers and clients to withdraw their, their Bitcoin because – He's basically providing a service that doesn't really help them. Is if you're not actively trading on Kraken, then you're not. It's kind of like a, a hassle to hold, you know, hundred thousand plus Bitcoin. Um, and Binance, you know, for for being for saying, hey, your funds are safe, don't withdraw, is a red flag in of itself. Um, what do you think about the Binance token? Right, like to me, when I, I've seen the price of the token, it like rocketed right when the price of the FTT token was was launching. And, you know, Binance's token hasn't collapsed like F- FTX's token. Does that set off more more red flags? Like how 
likely or possible is that that Binance ends up being something like FTX. Right. So without knowing the liability structure of Binance, and we didn't know the liability structure of FTX until it was too late, until their balance sheet got leaked. And it was shown that Alameda Research was holding more than the entire market capitalization of FTT. Um, and now some people realize, uh-oh, uh, you know, a lot of this market cap is hot air. And uh, the word FTT collateral was on their sheet. And so, uh-oh, so they spun a token out of thin air and were leveraging themselves against it. Um, Binance did the same thing in that they spun up a token out of thin air, but in this, oh, no, no, but, but they made a blockchain for it. They made the Binance smart chain, right? Which is, you know, just an, an Ethereum blockchain with, with more limited functionality that has the Binance name on it. whoop de doo right? At the end of the day, these things have little to no utility whatsoever. They're a function of uh, an artificially skewed low cost of capital and the BNB token itself uh, its price was pumped up into the stratosphere at the same time that Bitcoin itself began mooning. Okay, you know, we're in the midst of the liquidity cycle, liquidity expansion, 2021, we're going up forever. What do venture capitalists do? They give money to firms like Binance. Uh, the money flowing into Binance was insane. Uh, Binance is obviously the largest uh, exchange globally, um, the largest derivative products exchange globally too. And so the money flowing into Binance was insane. The, the ability for Binance to borrow against that those new customer deposits during the bull market was insane. So the idea that we should take this geezer's word for it, that, oh, we're not leveraging against customer funds, when like every human in their right mind, that, is, that ha doesn't have, like anybody... You know, unless you have the most restraint out of every, you know, out of any human on the entire planet, if you're receiving tens of millions of dollars worth of inflows every day, and like over the course of the year, your total assets, your total customer assets in your platform go from like uh, 10 billion to like 100 billion or 150 billion, and then the market cap of the token that you created out of thin air similarly goes to hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, Unless you are the, the, the you know the, the the most disciplined individual in the world, you're going to borrow against that. Like as a company, if you do not borrow against that, you are not being savvy. Um, and especially as uh, you know a crypto company, sort of the slimiest companies around, <laughs> chances are you're going to leverage that up. Um, you know this new wealth created out of nowhere. Um, unless you're a very very disciplined business owner. Um, which crypto people historically have not been. We saw this with Alex Mashinsky, who was leveraging against the sell token. We saw this, um, you know, with Three Hours Capital, who was, uh, you know, degenerately gambling and all these highly illiquid shit coins. Uh, we saw this with FTX, which was not only illegally distributing customer funds to another company, but it was leveraging against this token that it created out of thin air. And all of a sudden, we were told to believe that oh, Binance. It's uh, tokens market cap pumped billions of dollars just as the bull run ignited. Uh, also, the amount of deposits on its platform absolutely exploded. It's now the largest exchange in the world. Uh, but CZ is a trustworthy guy. He didn't borrow against any of that. Like, you shouldn't take anybody's word at face value, especially not that, and especially not if uh, Binance holds 5%, 10% of circulating BNB uh, on his balance sheet. Um, and obviously those are customer reserves, but again, it's something that it created out of thin air, that it pumped up with VC money, um, to think that th this isn't leveraged, you know, is a fool's game. But let's say it's not leveraged just for a moment. At the very least, BNB is very integral to Binance's platform liquidity. For its, for its loan program, the BNB that gets posted as collateral is rehypothecated. 
So in the platform itself, it's leveraged, even if it isn't leveraged outside of the platform for loans elsewhere, um, which I don't know why anybody would be accepting uh, an internally printed exchange token as collateral. It's it's happened though, um, you know, during the bull run, people were accept, give it, extending loans to Celsius that were collateralized with its own internal token. Same deal with FTX. Uh, at the height of the bull run, uh, you know, Three Hours Capital was able to borrow, you know, almost a billion dollars over the phone with no collateral at all. And so like lenders are being unbelievably irresponsible. Um, and so to think that like nobody lent to Binance whatsoever, Binance didn't, uh, you know, it, it didn't borrow against customer funds whatsoever. Um, it's shoddy at best and it's just, it's, it's misdirection at worst. And I think, uh, you know, Binance clearly uh, has a dependence on this BNB liquidity. You know, it's the largest asset on this platform. It is direct, direct ownership and, and it created the thing. Uh, and so, you know, as the market cap of this keeps ratcheting down because, you know, during liquidity cycle downturn, the, 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 the most worthless of the worthless gets absolutely eviscerated first. And that's why you saw Luna explode within months um, of the liquidity cycle downturn, Celsius shortly after, FTT shortly after, um, you know. So over the next year, as the Fed holds higher for longer, which they might be able to, um, consumers are looking okay. Housing's you know deteriorating fast, but it's looking okay. Credit markets are still functioning fine. Money markets are still liquid and operating well. We had a scare over in the UK, um, you know, with uh, with the value of gilts dropping so low that it threatened margin calls and things like that uh, across uh, LDIs and pension funds. But apart from uh, a few scares here and there, markets are functioning relatively robustly. So. Um, Ceteris paribus, the Fed actually may be able to hold higher for longer. And as the Fed holds higher for longer, Binance is going to continue getting gut checked. And so it may be FUD for now, but we'll see, right? As the liquidity keeps getting drained from the system, um, crypto is the weakest, absolute weakest link. So we'll see. We'll see if it's all FUD. Yeah, very well said. I think it's also important to point out because I posted, or many people have been posting this on Twitter about, hey, Finance is interesting right now. Withdraw your Bitcoin and take self custody. And I had some people like respond to me and others that hey, like you're you're gonna destroy crypto, you're gonna destroy Bitcoin. Like this is why are you doing this? You're you're fudding or whatever uh, people call it. And it's like the the outcomes that could happen from people withdrawing their Bitcoin from Binance are, in my opinion, only good. Right? If Binance is a totally legit operation and a lot of people withdraw their Bitcoin. Um, that means people, more people have taken self custody and if finance is legit, finance is fine. Like they don't go under or anything, then that's, everything's good. If finance is not legit, people take self custody of whatever Bitcoin finance has left and finance, which is basically a, a fraud goes under. And I think that's long-term good. I'd rather, you know, someone that's doing crazy things like SBF, uh, with FTX, I'd rather that clean that out now than have that go through another huge bull run cycle and misallocate capital further. Do you have thoughts on that or, or, or any ideas? Couldn't have said it any better. You know, the outcomes are only good. Um, it, it's not fun whatsoever. Dylan said it best. Um, you know, there, there's no, there's really no such thing as FUD for a fully reserved, fully solvent institution, right? If I had a bank and I had a billion dollars in assets and they were reserved one-to-one, -one, I didn't make loans whatsoever. I didn't rehypothecate consumer funds, um, you know, as collateral, um, you know, then, uh, then if every single customer came to my exchange doors and requested to withdraw their funds and all $1 billion worth of deposits were withdrawn, 
I wouldn't. Be, I would have zero dollars, but every single person would have been able to withdraw their funds. My exchange, uh, my my bank would have been gut checks. People would have seen that I was fully solvent all along, and then my business lives to die another day, right? Um, whereas if an exchange, if my bank wasn't fully reserved, um, you know, it, let's say I had a billion dollars in customer deposits, but I was only holding about a third of those. Uh, if everyone who had a deposit came to withdraw it. I'd be insolvent before the day was out. Uh, so the only outcomes from this are A, right? For, for the only outcomes for this FUD, right? Are either people withdraw and then they successfully withdraw and throughout this entire liquidity cycle downturn, Binance successfully does withdrawals and they're fine. Then Binance is a more credible institution, right? Uh, you know, chances are regulatory uh, bodies will look more highly on them and they live to die another day. And also people get self-custody. And if they aren't, then they go under. And the idea that people are saying, well, you're gonna destroy Binance. Well, okay, then your statement that me telling people to withdraw money from Binance uh, will destroy Binance, your statement presupposes that Binance is leveraged on customer funds, right? That, you know, most people don't understand this, right? If Binance is fully reserved, it'll have absolutely no problem meeting the withdrawals that have come and obviously will continue to come. So that, that's my take. I couldn't have said it any better than you did. Nice. Yeah, great points. Also, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, on this idea that I've recently been thinking about? Um, I think like money in like an economic system converges on, on one, like one tool, one good, and it's like the least uncertain asset. And when I think of like crypto broadly, you know, as we said, there you, people call them cryptocurrencies, right? But in the world of money and economic systems, there's only one need, need for one money, and I think that's Bitcoin. So it's like, okay, if these other cryptos are not money, and they're also not like equity, like what are they? And like if they're like semi-decentralized equity, that's like basically a security, that's like the future cash flows are basically like fees burning into and burning the token or paying out stake to, to token holders, then like it's kind of like a really poor equity because there's like no one actually like building it out or maybe there is a team building it out and it's basically a security. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Like how do you like think about crypto? And it's like, what are you, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So crypto, it, it, you know, it's like an equity, but you don't get any of the benefits of an equity. Uh, you know, it, it's basically just a vehicle for people to put their money in and there's no distinguishing characteristics, uh, between the vehicles. So like doggy coin and, you know, poopy coin and rocket coin, uh, they have different names, but they're all the same, right? They have different teams behind them, but they're all the same. Uh, they're all trying to accomplish one thing and that's raise capital and the founders can, can dip out. Um, the majority of these things have, you know, they, 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 they exist for a month and then they're gone. Um, and people will point to, well, look at Ethereum, look at this, look at that. Well, at the end of the day, what you're owning is a, is a, you know, a portion, uh, you know, it, you're, you're owning a portion of the team that's working on it, I suppose. And basically it's just a game of greater fools, right? You have none of the benefits of equity, i.e. you have no claim on, on the business itself. You have no ownership proportion, uh, in proportion to your equity. Um, you basically just hold this tool, uh, that will allow you to exchange uh, for dollars at a later date. And whether that's exchanging for dollars at a lower price or a higher price is incumbent on how many more idiots buy the thing before you. And so it's, it's, it's really just a game of greater fools. Um, and people will equate it to, uh, and BitBoy Crypto has done this several times. He's gone, 
Uh, well, look at FTT. You know, it's basically like FTX stock. Look at Crow. It's basically like Crypto.com stock. No, it's not basically like those firms' stock. Right? You don't have any ownership uh, ownership claim on the business. It, it has none of the benefits of an equity, but all of the risk and all of the associated downside. It's, it's essentially a game of greater fools. Yeah, well said. I, I mean, I think it just goes back to the idea that, hey, we had interest rates at 0% for so long. There was so much liquidity moving around the system. People felt like they had to invest in everything just to try to retain their purchasing power. Mm-hmm. And that's a sad is- aspect. That's why Robinhood exists. That's why <laughs> all of these different uh, marketing schemes have come out over the last like two years where everyone, uh, you know, it's, it's all about, you can be your own investor, right? Well, okay, why do I need to be my own investor? Uh, well, you know, because your your wealth is depreciating at like 5%, 10% a year. Uh-oh. And so like, it, it's an unfortunate consequence of the monetary structure that we live in. Uh, where every single crisis is just met with more mon- money and credit expansion. Um, you know, the idea that everyone needs to become an investor, not everyone's suited to be an investor, right? Not everyone should be an investor because when everybody is an investor, nobody is, right? It's, it's just a game of liquidity. It's can I get in before the other guy gets in? Can I get out before the other guy gets out? And, and that removes all of the fundamental aspects behind investing. Does this thing I'm investing in have value? Y or N? If N, don't invest. And it's just become, is this thing growing rapidly? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's basically all it's become. Yeah, well said. Um, you also recently talked about the Japanese central bank uh, loosening their yield curve control, con- yield curve control on the uh, the ten year yen uh, bond. Why did they do this, and what's the significance of this? Yeah, so a lot of people um, were misinterpreting the, the headlines around this and saying that, uh, you know, oh, this is the end of times, this is the end of worlds. Um, well, not even necessarily that. Some people were just, uh, they don't know what it what it means. And that's fine. Um, it is a difficult concept to get, but I'll try to simplify it as much as I can here. So historically, the Japanese yen and its suite of associated interest rates uh, on Japanese government bonds, and I'll refer to those as JGBs, um, the Japanese yen has been one of the cheapest, cheapest currencies uh, that you can find. Um, since 2000, basically what the Bank of Japan has been engaging in is the purchasing, the mass purchasing uh, to the tune of billions and tens of billions of yen worth of JGBs in order to uh, in, basically do targeted interest rate policy uh, and, and influence interest rates by purchasing bonds and then suppressing, suppressing, suppressing those interest rates. Uh, and, and the Bank of Japan was basically the pioneer of QE because of this. So earlier on in the conversation, the first thing we talked about was uh, that the Fed influences front-end rates. One of the struggles that the Fed has always had until the advent of QE, when it started using it in 2007 and eight, was controlling the long end of the curve, right? Um, it can set an overnight rate, but it, it has no ability to influence what long-end interest rates do. That was until QE. That was until the Bank of Japan started doing QE. And QE is essentially a mechanism to control the long end of the curve. And what yield curve control is, is an attempt by the Bank of Japan that has been successful to control the long end of the curve. And unfortunately, the way that that happens uh, is inflationary. Um, You know, Japan has historically struggled to get to its 2% inflation target. So basically, it's just been suppressing interest rates as fast as it possibly can by purchasing um, boatloads of its 10-year JGB. 
Um, it's purchased so much of them to the extent that it owns over uh, 80 or 90% of the entire uh, 10-year tenor in the JGB market. So the Bank of Japan, they have a interest rate target that they set out when they're buying these JGBs. And that interest rate target has been 0.25% uh, for the last two years. Um, it's been getting progressively uh, higher. Uh, before it was, uh, before I think 2016, 2015, it was, uh, you know, three and a half, four point five percent, something like that. And now it's down to point. It was down to uh, to point two five percent. And basically, what the Bank of Japan announced was that they would be changing their interest rate target for their yield curve control program to point five percent. So whereas before. Any selling pressure that would cause the JGB 10-year yield to rise above 2.25% would be met with buying pressure from the Bank of Japan to suppress that interest rate back down and make it just level at 0.25% to the best of their ability. Um, And now they basically said, we're going to allow the 10-year to sell off all the way up to 0.5%. Um, And so they've widened that band that they're allowing the 10-year yield to fluctuate between. Uh, And so what this means is that, as I said, because of artificially suppressed interest rates, uh, and since the 80s, really, the Japanese yen has been one of the uh, most widely used funding currencies around the world. Um, And so people borrow in yen because it's extremely cheap and its interest rates are very suppressed. And then they lend in their home currency. Uh, whether it's uh, so you take interest rate differentials into account, people borrow in yen and they lend in the Australian dollar, which is historically high interest rates. People borrow in yen and they lend um, in something like the Swiss franc. People borrow in yen and they lend, of course, in the US dollar as well. And uh, this is what's called a carry trade, a currency carry trade. Uh, and basically, it's just borrowing at a low interest rate cross currency and then lending or investing in a higher interest rate in a higher interest rate capital market or a money market or an equity market, well, capital market, debt and equity markets. And so now that Japan has allowed its suite of interest rates to increase, now that trade that where that cross currency, uh, uh, that cross currency carry trade, uh, one of the most widely used funding operations globally uh, is now more expensive. Right, so the yen was the most popular funding currency, uh, one of the most popular funding currencies because of its really cheap interest rates, and those interest rates just got higher, and so it's going to have the effect of uh, tightening globally. So, like one of the last holdouts for negative real rates around the world was Japan with its ten-year yield, uh, and now that it's allowing it to freely fluctuate, um, you know, basically one of the last holdouts for artificially cheap interest rates. That people were using globally, uh, you know, uh, capital allocators were using globally in order to fund themselves on a short-term basis. Um, that's gone. That just got a little bit more expensive. So it's just going to have the effect of a little bit more monetary tightening around the globe, as basically every single major sovereign is now tightening policy. Yeah, very well said. Um, before we wrap it up, I wanted to talk about one thing that we mentioned uh, previously a few questions back. You, you touched on the idea of, of paper Bitcoin and paper gold, and it, it brought up the concept in my mind of we've basically seen what happens when you issue paper Bitcoin, whether it's like FTX or, or BlockFi or Celsius. You get wrecked pretty quickly. I mean, they, those companies didn't last very long. Whereas, you know, paper gold, a lot of people argue that's 
suppress the price of, of gold, which maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. Um, but you haven't seen, you know, paper gold uh, platforms blow up, right? Because exactly like you articulated earlier, it's very hard to, to call your gold and take physical possession in a cheap, quick manner. So if there are people fractionally reserving gold or, or they're selling you gold that they don't have, it seems like that's not going to blow up as easily. And like maybe the last time that that did blow up was like when Nixon cut off the gold standard, he effectively just rugged everyone of their gold, of which were they were just holding dollars. Um, but as a way of, of saying like, hey, like we're not even going to give you any of your gold back. You just hold these dollars. I don't know. What are your thoughts on like the paper gold market and the paper Bitcoin market? Yeah. So the paper gold market is a huge, huge issue. I was speaking to Lawrence Lepard uh, a week or two ago, and he was articulating this. And for the reason that you you just articulated that it's really hard to take physical delivery of your gold, especially if you have large quantities of it, um, there isn't a really high likelihood that you're going to see what happened in uh, pre-71, where all these nations who were holding their gold uh, with the U.S. government uh, and trying to redeem their gold for the dollars that they held, uh, that caused like you know a, a, a run on the gold bank. You're not going to see something like that today. Um, you know, you are seeing central banks purchasing physical gold more than they ever have before. But because of the really cumbersome nature of gold, the fact that it's physical, uh, that is the limiting factor in taking delivery. And because of that, it has exponentially lowered the likelihood that exchanges uh, and, and uh, financial institutions that are holding paper Bitcoin ever have solvency issues. Because all that people will do is exchange their paper gold for dollars, right? Just marking to market that gain uh, that they get you know, on a dollar basis from holding gold rather than ever taking delivery of their gold. And that's usually the case, right? Everyone except for, you know, crazy, crazy uncle Dave, who has all the gold under his, you know, floorboards or whatever. You're not going to see a lot of retail investors taking delivery of their gold. Rather, you're going to see people, you know, buying and investing in gold futures or purchasing gold uh, that, that just so happens to not actually have the asset backing uh, the, the paper claim that you're buying. Um, and because again, not many people are going to take delivery of it you're never really going to have a solvency issue, right? You're never going to have a run on the gold bank where, where these paper uh, people who are holding, uh, you know, they, they give out claims on paper gold. They're never going to go and solve it. Bitcoin, uh, it's a much, uh, you know, with Bitcoin, it is a much lower issue because when people hold, when exchanges hold paper Bitcoin, really easy to redeem that, really easy to redeem that. Um, and when you redeem it and, you know, at a certain point, you, you exhaust your actual Bitcoin reserves and you begin dipping into you know, other assets, that's when the jig is up. Um, and because uh, you know, there are uh, hundreds, thousands of exchanges even, uh, it's really difficult at this level of liquidity. Um, and the fact that Bitcoin is, uh, you know, and Bitcoin adjacent markets like crypto are so speculative, um, the price is just moving all the time. And so operating and efficiently operating a paper Bitcoin operation is really difficult because of the volatility involved with Bitcoin and also the easiness that somebody can redeem their Bitcoin on your platform for real Bitcoin they take into custody. So that's why paper gold is an issue and chances are it will continue to be an issue well into the future uh, for decades and decades and decades to come. Whereas paper Bitcoin, it's always going to be difficult to run a paper Bitcoin operation. Um, so yeah, that, those are my uh, two cents there. Nice. Yeah, last question that I want to ask you, and then we can uh, close it out. I was on a 
Twitter space earlier today, and I think it was uh, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Ross uh, was mentioning this idea that I've thought of, but I'm not sure where I stand on the, on the idea right now. Uh, he mentioned that, you know, the 2020-2021 bull market that Bitcoin had was, you know, kind of muted relative to the 2017 bull market and the 2013 bull market. He thought that, um, you know, that could have been from a variety of different reasons, but he also thought that the next bull market was going to kind of make up for the lost gains that we didn't see in the previous bull market. Do you think that that's going to be the case, or do you think we're going to continue to see, like, diminishing marginal returns as Bitcoin just becomes a larger, more mature asset. Right. So as Bitcoin becomes larger and there's more liquidity in dollar terms involved, it's going to be harder to get the same relative returns, right? You know, a bull run where you get a thousand, you know, percent gains year on year is much easier when you have a $1 billion liquidity profile than it is when you have a $1 trillion liquidity profile, you know? So it's going to be much more difficult to achieve the same percentage returns. Um, there are things that will certainly help. One of those things is the elimination of uh, paper Bitcoin that absorbs uh, the sell, uh, the buy side. Um, a lot of that buy side liquidity that doesn't actually go to purchasing Bitcoin from miners um, or other uh, dealers that have Bitcoin to sell to exchanges. Um, and it just goes to paper Bitcoin. You know, As those shops get eviscerated, as monetary policy stays tight for now, then in the next bull market, Ideally, you'll have a lot more of customer liquidity, uh, retail liquidity, and uh, you know, big money money uh, you know maker liquidity. You know, these people that have billions and billions of dollars uh, that are allocating to Bitcoin. Ideally, a lot of that liquidity will actually go into real Bitcoin, which will be um, you know re- reflexively positive uh, to the upside for uh, for the Bitcoin price. Um, but I do think that through time, uh, you will it, the the other factor in terms of determining whether Bitcoin cycles have these, still an exponential growth profile, don't get me wrong, because Bitcoin is still only a $400 billion asset. It is, you know, if we are to believe that it will become a, a global, a base layer reserve asset alternative, which, uh, you know, of course, this book back here and, and at the Bitcoin layer, that is, you know, one of the things that, that we believe, um, uh, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, then uh, Bitcoin's liquidity profile has, uh, 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 you know, leaps and bounds to expand a few more zeros at the very least to be added on to it. And so, you know, if we understand that, and if we think that, you know, whatever crisis faces the Fed and global central banks next will be met with a higher proportion of monetary expansion, then that leaves the the door open for potentially, uh, you know, marginal returns to increase uh, on a cycle by cycle basis. If the intervention uh, is much higher than the previous intervention from a central bank, then that is when you would see, uh, you know, let's say that the 2021 cycle, um, you had like a, you know, 200% compound annual growth rate. Maybe the 2023 cycle, 2024 cycle, if these paper Bitcoin shops are eliminated and if, you know, crisis occurs and the central bank intervention is higher uh, dollar for dollar than the last intervention, then you may see a cycle that has higher returns than the previous cycle. But I think that as Bitcoin continues monetizing, as its liquidity profile grows larger, um, you'll probably get diminishing marginal returns cycle after cycle, um, which will still be extremely outsized um, you know, in the near term. And also as Bitcoin supply schedule continues having, continues cutting in half uh, every four years, 
that will also, um, you know, eventually, basically, as no supply is coming out of the market, you know, like 2050, 2060, when it's literally a fraction of a fraction of one Bitcoin, um, that that is when you will, in all likelihood, uh, start to see the asset move much higher. Uh, when there is literally no supply left to be minted, I think that will be a, a lot of people will take a look at the having and say that it is, you know, it, it's a really huge positive event for Bitcoin's price. I tend to think as as long as issuance is still, you know, above one, uh, you know, every single block, it, it isn't that big of an event. But once it starts, you know, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.25, you know, way, way below that, I think that's when it becomes um, something that can mean a lot more upside for Bitcoin. But for the time being, um, diminishing marginal returns cycle after cycle. And then through time, if central bank intervention becomes larger and larger and larger and larger, um, then I think you, you may begin to see uh, larger returns cycle after cycle. It's all dependent on, on that variety of factors. Yeah, I think those are fantastic points. Uh, we can go ahead and close this out. Joe, thanks so much for coming on. And where do you want to send the audience after this? Absolutely, Joe. Thanks for having me on. It was a blast. I really enjoy these uh, these discussions. You can find me uh, my tag on the screen uh, is at Joe Consorti. I was able to snag the first name, last name, Twitter tag. Happy about that. You can also go to thebitcoinlayer.com uh, where you can subscribe to our Substack publication. Myself and Nick Vatia, the author of Layered Money and adjunct professor at USC Finance, uh, USC Marshall, rather. We write a Bitcoin and macro newsletter. Uh, you know, if some of the concepts that I spoke about in today's video confuse you or you want to be enlightened and you want to learn more, and uh, build out your very own macro framework and learn to understand the world around you, um, then uh, our YouTube channel and our Substack will be the best places to visit. Yeah, everybody go check that out. Joe, thanks again for coming back on the podcast. Uh, this is a great convo. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.